Hi, I'm Dr. Gemma Newman, also known as the Plant Power Doctor, and I'm your host for the Wellness Edit podcast with Holland and Barrett. In this episode, I'm really excited to talk to Dr. Zoe Williams. She's a GP like me, and those of you who listen to the podcast would probably know her best for being one of the resident GPs on ITV's This Morning. She's also a big campaigner for fitness. She's a new mum. She's had her first baby, Lisbon, who was born in May of this year. And I really enjoyed this chat. It was a genuine, authentic chat about all things new mum, being a GP, uh, wellness, and how she fits it into her day, how that's changed over time because of her new role as mum, and also talking about other things that have been important to her, um, exercise as one of the foundations for lifestyle medicine, and also things like self-compassion and self-belief. It was a lovely really interesting conversation and I hope that you guys enjoy it as much as I did. Check it out. Welcome Zoe. Thanks Gemma, it's so good to see you. I haven't seen you for a while and it's great to be chatting to you. Yeah, it's been a long time. Dr. Zoe is also a massive advocate of lifestyle medicine. And so, you know, we've met at various events and bits and pieces along the way. So it's lovely to be able to connect and share more about you on this podcast as well. I think we've, we've, we've probably met lots of times professionally around lifestyle medicine, but I'm sure the last time I saw you in person, we did a yoga class at the top of the shard. Is that right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. It was a Tai Chi class, Zoe. Tai Chi, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) That was really good. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Oh, right. So let's talk a little bit more about you because although, you know, I know an awful lot about all the things that you're up to, um, maybe some of our listeners don't. So let's talk a little bit about your background and how you became a doctor? Oh, well, I definitely didn't take the the standard route into medicine. I knew I wanted to be a doctor from the age of three. On my third birthday, I was uh, given a a nurse's kit and outfit by my grandma, my Jamaican grandmother, who was a midwife. And she gave me this and I loved it. So everyone who came to our house to visit, I wanted to check their temperature and look in their ears and listen with the stethoscope. So my grandma said, oh, when you grow up, are you going to be a midwife like me? And I said, no, I'm going to be a doctor. And uh, was just fascinated with the human body and science and just medicine in particular throughout my life and always wanted to be a doctor. But when I was doing my A-levels, life got a bit complicated for a number of reasons that I won't go into on this podcast. I'll, I'll be talking about it all day. But yeah, life got turned a bit upside down and, and my A-level results were B, C and E. Now, no medical school is ever going to accept somebody with those results. So I didn't really have a backup plan. So I went travelling and lived in lived in Tenerife for a bit, worked as a landscape gardener, sold double glazing, you name it, I did it. And eventually went to Newcastle University to study um, biomedical sciences, which was a three-year undergrad course in the medical school. And it was the first year that Newcastle had done it. It was the, Newcastle were the first university to ever do it. Um, but they came into our lecture theatre one day and they said all the various different biological science degrees, they recognised there were a lot of students who had wanted to be doctors, but for whatever reason hadn't made it. So they were opening up six places for people who were on, there were about 350 of us across these degrees um, to go into medicine back into first year the following year, they said it was a bit of an experiment. So in order to do that, I had to, um, first of all, get a first in all modules in the first semester. 
then do an essay application. Then they interviewed 12 people for the six places and those six places would be conditional on again getting a first in all modules in semester two. And after the interview, they actually only offered two of us a place, only two of us passed the interview. I was the only one who progressed to medicine on that route. Um, So yeah, it was kind of, I always believed it would happen. I didn't know how. And a combination, I think, of hard work, luck, believing in myself and maybe I don't know maybe the universe had a plan maybe that was always meant to be (laughs) oh Zoe that's a really lovely story I think it's a really interesting thing to learn from as well because sometimes when things don't always turn out how we want them to we give up on our dreams so we think oh obviously that wasn't meant to be and I'll just have to do something else and through hard work tenacity and I guess perhaps just that sense of belief that it was going to happen. That's that's just a lovely story. I feel like, I mean, for me, there was an easier transition because I just went straight from my A-levels to medical school. But it wasn't an easy path as such because I didn't go to a fantastic results school, as it were. And, you know, my A-level, my first mock in my chemistry A-level, I got a U. <laughs> I was so bad. <laughs> and um, I just, you know, I, I had to really basically study the entire curriculum by myself in order to be able to switch that round to an A which I eventually did but it's like there are these certain moments in life where you think okay this is a turning point moment I either decide one thing or I decide another yeah and for you to have gone through a really hard time and then made a decision for yourself to actually keep going and keep pushing yeah it was it was a lovely lovely result thanks and I think I I do a lot of talking to younger people these days and often audiences of younger people from more deprived backgrounds who perhaps don't have a lot of doors opened for them. And there's two sort of take-home messages that I leave them with. One of them is that depending on who you are, you might not necessarily be handed opportunities. You know, doors might not be swung open for you. In fact, doors might be slammed shut in your face. I once heard um, a politician say this, a a female brown-skinned politician, and she said, for some of us, you know, that door's not going to be opened. You might have to go around the corner, find a window, a crack in the window and crowbar your way in, but never stop trying. So I leave them with that. And the other thing is this little three-ingredient recipe for success. I think the recipe... To achieve success is number one, hard work. And there's no, you know, whoever you are, you've got to work hard to achieve great things. The second one is to be brave enough to aim for higher than what you want. Because if you aim for, if you aim for Saturn, then you might just make it to the moon. So don't aim for the moon, aim for both. If you want to be a millionaire, aim to be a billionaire. And I think for me, you know, I aimed to be a doctor, but not just a doctor. I, from a young age, thought, I want to sit on that sofa. I watched Dr. Chris growing up on this morning and thought, I want that. And I think, I didn't really believe it would happen, but I hoped it would happen. And I spoke about it. And I guess I put it out into the universe. And eventually it did happen. And what's the third one? That's two, isn't it? Oh, gosh. Working hard, aiming high. Oh, never be told you can't. Always believe yes, I can. You've got to tell yourself in your head over and over again, yes, I can, yes, I can. Because I think sometimes we're our own biggest enemy and and self-belief and self-doubt can be the biggest hurdle. Yeah, you're right. 
I feel as I can really resonate with what you're saying because I've I've had similar experiences in my life. It's a strange thing. Like I really wanted to write my book to help people understand more about the benefits of plant-based nutrition for environmental health and personal health. And I had this idea and I just held it in my heart and believed it could happen. And then, you know, people come to you, like literary agents and, and you know, publisher. And I thought, oh, okay, that, that worked very well. <laughs> it was kind of like having that feeling that sense of peace in your heart, knowing that you are enough, you are enough and you can get the things that you want. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's, as you say, our, our minds are so much in control of the things that we can achieve or the things that we think we can achieve. So it's, it's nice to, to sort of keep that in mind for people who are feeling a bit of self-doubt or thinking, well, I didn't have this kind of background, so it's impossible for me. You, you know, never think it's impossible. But I think this is an interesting conversation because obviously you and I are both scientists. We work in the field of science. We've studied science our whole lives. Yet, I don't know, I think with, for me, with maturity and growing up, I really do recognise now quite strongly that there is something beyond science that we don't understand, the spiritual world. And I'm sure a lot of people are now familiar with the book, The Secret. If anybody hasn't read that book, it's definitely worth reading. And there's a lot of things in that book, I just think, well, it's a bit over the top. But I do believe that the kind of bare bones of the message of that book are really, really true, that it's not necessarily that if you just wish for something, it will happen. But for me, you know, my career progressing to a TV career, when I was at university studying medicine, it's like all my dreams have come true. Like, unless I make a big mistake now, I'm actually going to be a doctor. This is amazing. And we'd all discuss amongst ourselves, what kind of doctor do you want to be? You know, some people want to be a paediatrician or a brain surgeon or whatever. And and I always couldn't decide, but I thought, I used to say, I didn't really think I wanted to be a GP, but I used to say, the words came out of my mouth, I'm going to be a GP, I'm going to continue to live in Newcastle, which is where I was at the time, because as a GP, I can have flexibility in my career. And I used to say to people, like kind of as a, a bit of a joke, what I'll do is on a Monday and a Tuesday and a Wednesday, I'll work as a GP. Then on a Thursday, I'll travel down to London and have the day off. On a Friday, I'll sit on the this morning sofa and do a spot there. I'll take off from Dr. Chris. And then on a Saturday, I'll have my second day off and I'll go shopping and go out for lovely dinners in London. And then on Sunday, I'll do the radio. And there used to be a, a Sunday surgery show on a Sunday evening. And that's what I used to say, kind of as a joke. And then you know, now I look at my life and I think, well, it's not far from that. That's kind of what's happened. And had I not said that, even though I didn't really believe it, a hundred times plus, I'm sure it wouldn't have happened. Yeah. And it's not just that as well. You've been you've been a gladiator on the telly <laughs> yes. as well, haven't you? <laughs> yeah. So I, again, that was an opportunity that I thought I didn't stand a chance. So when gladiators came back on our screens in 2008 on Sky One, having been a massive fan of the show in the 90s, like I think everybody was. I think I used to watch it on the TV when I was, I think, about maybe 12, 13. It would be yeah. on every, every Saturday, I think so it was So now I can on. figure out your age. I'm a few years older than you because I was about 15, 16, I think. And me and my brother used to take all the cushions off the sofa and try and build a pyramid. And so when it came back on our TV screens, I was with a bunch of medics, actually. And... Um, and we're, I was just like, I can't believe this is back. I was so excited to watch it. And then my friend, Shawzy, who was a professional rugby player, at the end of the series, they said they were looking for contestants for the next series. And he said, you've got to apply. And I said, well, I, you know, I can't apply. I was an F1 doctor, just finding my way in the world. 
you know, finally this dream of being a doctor had, had come true. I said, what will people think? People won't take me seriously. And then he reminded me of how much my student loan was as someone who funded, you know, I used to fund myself through university. I quite a hefty student loan. And he said, I think the prize was £10,000, which would have, you know, taken the little bit of the loan away he said you kind of need that money I was like all right you know that's how shallow it was in the end so I applied for that reason went to the audition to be a contestant they asked me to come back and audition to be one of the new gladiators and I'll never forget that day it's one of the best days of my life I rocked up and I think there were about 40 women most of whom were team GB athletes and there I was little old Zoe who you know luckily I've been playing rugby for five years which had really helped Thought I didn't stand a chance, made it all the way through to the end of the day and then was cast as one of the new gladiators. I'm like, gosh, what is going on? It was a very What a difference a day makes. I I know. (laughs) It's still like, I still now, I talk about it. I'm like, did that really happen? Am I just talking a load of codswallop or is that? But yeah, it did did happen. I was a gladiator. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it is pretty cool. (laughs) And I think when you mentioned about how we're both scientists, but we kind of both have a feeling that there's more to life in the world. I totally resonate with that. And for me, I mean, science is really about discovery. Science is a process of discovery. And we use specific models to help us to quantify discoveries through science. And it's an evolving process. So for me, I feel as though a spiritual life or a spiritual understanding is sometimes not really connected to science and it's not something that, that many people would actually do a study on but it, it, it could potentially be part of the scientific process at some point because all science really is is about quantifiable discovery exactly and it's you know the unbelievable is just stuff that we haven't understood how to believe yet yeah agreed ah so you decided to be a gp you decided to be a tv doctor all of that stuff happened And now, you know, you're a huge advocate as well for lifestyle and preventative medicine. Did that come from your clinical life? Like understanding, because I ask you that because for me, it very much did. I became a GP thinking, right, that's it. I'm going to be able to help people and it's going to be amazing. And then I ended up feeling a little bit despondent because I was tinkering with medications and asking people to come back and watching them slowly decline and... Also, depending on where I was working, there was a lot of social deprivation at times. And I just really, for me personally, I felt like I need to study more and figure out more how to help people prevent or even in some cases reverse these things based on where they're at. But that's something that that I really sort of strive to do. But how did it how did it happen for you? I think as doctors, how we choose to practice is we all have something in common is that we've all learnt the science. We've all been to medical school. We've all learnt the information, we have the knowledge. But then I think your personal experience of life really shapes what your specialist interests become. And I just think for me as an individual, I, as a child, I, you know, I was, we we didn't have much money. We were in a very much a white working class town. So I was different. Um, My parents separated when I was young. My mum needed to use benefits. And I had quite severe asthma as well. So it wasn't necessarily the easiest, most privileged start in life, but my asthma was severe. I was, I ended up in hospital two or three times a year, often with asthma attacks. There was one time I I almost died. And my paediatrician, Dr. Thistlethwaite, who I loved, but could never say his name, um, 
he actually gave me a social prescription. He said to my mum when I was about six years old or seven years old, that it's really, really important. I can't stress how important it is that you encourage Zoe to get into some form of sport, physical activity, because for a number of reasons, one, it's going to help her with her, her asthma. It's going to help her get stronger. And she's got severe asthma. It's probably the most important. It's just as important as in, in inhalers. But also she is a very shy child, like very, very shy, cling to my mum. You know, if somebody said hello to me, I'd scream. She lacks confidence and she's grown up in a world where she's going to need that. So it's going to help her come out of her shell. So I did. So I started doing, it was dance first of all, and then it's primary school. I started to love netball. And then at secondary school, I got involved in everything. And for me, the physical activity element of lifestyle medicine, which is kind of my my major, it's what I am most passionate about, I wouldn't be where I am today had that doctor not given that advice. And everything that I've achieved in life, being a gladiator, the competitive side of my personality through sport, which was what encouraged me to push myself academically and gaining just the confidence in myself. Like In year nine at school, when doing options, my teachers said to me, when I said I want to be a doctor, they were like, oh, that's very nice. But, you know, you really should come up with something that is more achievable and realistic and they said that with good intentions because to be honest mixed race girls from my school I was the only one didn't go on to become doctors nobody went on to become doctors so they were setting my expectations but sport taught me to believe in myself and taught me that you've got to believe something's going to happen for it to happen so I just think you know everything I've achieved happened because I was active and got into sport and that wouldn't have happened had it not been for that doctor so once I've become a doctor and I'm seeing the same as you I'm seeing people living in in deprivation the only opportunity really people have to live healthily and live well unless like you and I you know they manage to get themselves out of deprivation into a job a lifestyle where where you have more is if they become passionate about their own health, whether that's through nutrition or exercise or, you know, meditation and caring for their mental health and stress management or relationships, whatever element of lifestyle medicine that is, that's the best chance that they have. So working in areas of deprivation, I became really passionate about trying to educate and encourage patients whilst recognising that those same patients are the ones it's more much more difficult for them to have the agency in the first place with their difficult lives and other priorities I became passionate and I thought we need we really need doctors and healthcare professionals to be incorporating this lifestyle advice into their clinical practice and that's sort of what's led me into roles like working with Public Health England and the Royal College of GPs because whilst I can have those conversations with my patients I have seen great results I really want to make sure that my colleagues feel armed to do the same because it just wasn't something that was taught in medical school. Yeah, I I completely agree. And as you say, for me, I work in a an area where there are a lot of people who who need help because they are having issues financially, socially. They've been able to achieve things that they never thought possible through the power of lifestyle and you know to see that in your life and in your work I mean I'm fortunate I'm so lucky that I've been I've been with my patients for oh, 13 years I've been working in the same place and uh, so that was always my dream is it was to you know get to know the whole family children grandchildren and 
to see that in practice is wonderful but it's something that I would love for my colleagues to see and experience as well there's a lot of GPs right now who are really struggling actually I know that there's various things in the media about GPs often it kind of comes in cycles doesn't it, it does. <laughs> the, the GP bashing but what's the reception been in terms of your message to, to other colleagues like has it always been well received by no. other GPs <laughs> it's so I started working with Public Health England in 2014 and that was very much I helped worked with PHE to deliver a educational package and then we trained what we call clinical champions. So that's other healthcare professionals who were passionate about physical activity to go and, and train other healthcare professionals. And now that work, it started off with GP trainees and then GPs. And now it's across the board, nurses, midwives, physios, occupational therapists. Um, this training package is delivered. When I first started doing it and it was just me, um, I think I kind of became known as that GP who's a bit mad and bangs on about physical activity all the time. But of course, the, the science and the data and the research and the evidence over the past 10 years, when it comes to physical activity in the context of health, disease prevention and disease management, it's now just undeniable. And now, you know, that educational package is received with open arms. We get people coming to us at PHE asking us to go and deliver the training. So there has been a real revolution. But, you know, for example, we've known for over 10 years, there have been studies that show that for mild to moderate depression, physical activity as a treatment is as effective as SSRI antidepressants. It's as effective as CBT. And it's a specific type of exercise that was in the study. So it's group exercise twice a week can be as effective as either an antidepressant or CBT therapy. So the way I see it is that as a GP, if you have a patient in front of you who is struggling with their mental health, and you know, this was for me, my my skills in lifestyle medicine really helped me through the pandemic because I always had that to turn to when I couldn't refer a patient or get them the treatments that they needed. For me, I think a GP is sat with a patient and is prescribing an antidepressant and not informing that patient of the benefits of physical activity. And of course, you know, it's difficult because if a patient's depressed, then having the motivation to exercise is really difficult. I think that's really not appropriate. We are prescribing medication for patients and I prescribe antidepressants to my patients often. They're a great treatment, but I would never give that prescription without also making sure the patient had the knowledge of just how efficacious physical activity could be alongside that medication or if the patient chooses to trial the exercise on its own first. And of course, you know, many patients say, well, actually, I'm going to start doing the 20 minutes of brisk walking every day. I also want to take the medication and I want to take the CBT brilliant because that's what's going to likely to give you the best result and now we're seeing a lot of evidence around how sleep actually and night the nice guidance actually says that for mild to moderate depression the first line treatments should be supporting the patient to improve their sleep and recommending group physical activity programs that wasn't the case 10 years ago so my job in promoting physical activity has changed a lot from people thinking I'm a bit mad to now I think <laughs> to now I think you know recognizing and respecting my my expertise in the subject yeah it's true I think uh, things have changed the landscape has certainly changed a lot over the last few years and hopefully it will continue to do so it was the same with you right with plant-based nutrition you know people yeah are now... people have often thought I was the crazy one but yeah. actually <laughs> we now have an RCGP green toolkit and 
exactly. <laughs> you know, it's it's that's it. I think what I think when you become somebody who's so passionate to share a message and the evidence for that message over time hopefully it becomes a little bit more into the public consciousness and people become more aware of those things. And, you know, as you've pointed out, exercise is so crucial to well-being. Healthy foods are really uh, very important as well. Good sleep, really important. Understanding a little bit more about what makes you happy. Human connection. I mean, my goodness, I talk so much about human connection and how much people have really missed that over the last year, two years. It's been a really difficult time. I feel, I feel like the last couple of years has really shone a light on a number of the different aspects around lifestyle medicine. You know, physical activity got a rebrand because it stopped being the thing that we're meant to try and find time to do. And it became the one thing we're allowed to leave our houses to do. Social isolation. Well, everybody got a little taste of what it feels like to be socially isolated, even if not themselves personally. We all knew somebody who was struggling with that. And you know, it breaks my heart to think that there are a lot of particularly elderly people for whom the pandemic made no difference to their levels of isolation because they live that every day. I know I have patients that come and see me not because they feel unwell, but because it's the only way to get a human interaction that month. But also nutrition, you know, people re-engage with, with cooking and ingredients and, and you know, I, I think probably, you know, more plant-based way of living. People started to learn a lot more about that. Yeah, it's true. And sleep. Yeah, I think sleep affected, it was a bit of a dichotomy with sleep, wasn't it? Some people slept really well and some people struggled. Yeah, I think you're right. Anxiety had a big impact for a lot of people on their sleep and also just that constant feeling of being on, you know, because many people had to work from home and homeschooling. Many people still are working from home a lot more than they perhaps were. And then it's hard to switch off, especially with social media and emails and all the stuff that kind of keeps your mind whirring at night. So yeah, it's a bit of a mixed bag with sleep, I know. <laughs> Do you think, what are your thoughts about, you know, Dr. Google? Because sometimes it's hard to get hold of your doctor and many people now, of course, will naturally go online and seek things out. What are your thoughts about that? I once made a a short film about this for the programme I used to work on for the BBC, Trust Me, I'm a Doctor. And I think the thing with Dr. Google that we have to recognise is that everybody will use it. You know, I've just become a mum and I use it all the time, but what's important two things are important I think the first one is the source that you use like the internet is a great source of information but the NHS website for example is going to give you evidence-based correct up-to-date information and advice whereas if you go on to Mumsnet for example there's nothing on there that's reliable and it could actually be quite dangerous so thinking about your sources and using regulated sources of information and if you're going on Instagram or Twitter for your advice you know if it's something medical go to a doctor if it's something dental go to a dentist don't go to Kim Kardashian for dental advice for example Um, which is obvious but you know people do especially younger people if they look up to certain individuals they idolize them and there'll be lots of plant-based experts out there Gemma who don't necessarily know what they're talking about and could be giving out advice that is dangerous, but they seem like experts. So so pick your source as well. And my second bit of advice is when you do come and see your GP, just tell us that you've been on Google. Tell us what you've seen, because if you've had a bit of pain in your shoulder, for example, 
If you Googled it, there's a load of horrible things that can give you pain in your shoulder. Now, you've probably got pain in your shoulder because you've got a bit of inflammation somewhere in the muscles or the bones or the joint. Um, but there are some like really nasty illnesses that can cause what we call shoulder tip pain as well. Now, you go and Google it, the things that flash up and the things that are going to stick in your mind. So if you've been looking at that and you're now worried you've got this awful condition because you've got musculoskeletal pain, as a GP, we really appreciate it if you just say, I've been on Google and I've seen this and I'm really worried about it because then that gives us the opportunity to say, well, this is definitely not what you have. So, you know, chest pain is a really good example. Put in chest pain, you're going to get angina, heart attacks coming up. Whereas if you're a young, fit, healthy person who's got chest pain in the absence of loads of other symptoms, we can reassure you straight away that you're not having a heart attack. This is probably a number of things. We might not be able to tell you what it is, but we can tell you what it is not. So if you've been on Google and then you've seen your doctor or a nurse or another healthcare professional, just let us know what you've been on and what you've seen. Such good advice. I do that a lot in my practice as well. I say, what were your worries and concerns about this? What have you looked up so far? Just so I can understand what kind of uh, playing field we're dealing with. Because as you say, there's all sorts you can find online and not all of it is necessarily compatible with, <laughs> with the diagnosis. And also as GPs, we use Google all the time. If I'm, yeah. you know, if I'm with a patient and it's a skin condition, um, I use a website called DermNZ, which is really, really great. It's a New Zealand-based um, dermatological website. And if a patient is describing to me a rash they've got and, or, you know, maybe they've come and they had a rash, but it's gone... I'll often put it in there, which brings up loads of pictures and look at the patient. Did it look like this? Did it look like that? So, you know, the internet is a great source of information, but just use it sensibly. Yeah, that's a very good piece of advice. And it kind of draws a little bit on how we communicate with patients as well, generally. Like, how do we get to the root of what the problems are that they want to share and work out what they actually need? Is there, I mean, have you got any sort of nuggets of wisdom on in your experience of how best to uh, for patients to get the best out of their doctors and for you to get the best out of your patients I think my advice to people generally is don't hold back just just tell us everything because I think often it's almost like there's this game you know we're meant to follow these rules as the patient you go in and see the doctor and you give the doctor all the clues and the doctor's the detective and they've got to work it out we're actually often as a patient you you know what's going on, but you feel like you're not allowed to say because that's the doctor's job and you're treading on their toes. What I always say is there's two experts in that room. If there's a patient and a doctor, there are two experts. And, you know, as doctors, we're experts in medical stuff, health, diagnosing things, what investigations to do, how to treat things. But as a patient, you're just as much an expert, if not more, when it comes to whatever that particular problem is that's going on for you. And two individuals will experience the same problem very, very differently. So, you know, if you're going in there and you're thinking, oh, you know, I've got this symptom, I've got these headaches, and I think I've got a brain tumour, just tell us, like, you probably don't have a brain tumour, but if we don't know, we don't know how to reassure you. Yeah. And, and that we're taught this, you know, at medical school, we're taught ice, ice, ice baby. The I is for ideas, the C is for concerns, the E is for expectations. So as part of our, within our 10 minutes, one of the things we should be trying to find out is the ideas. What do you as a patient actually think it is? What are you worried about? And what are your expectations? What do you want to get out of that consultation? So don't be afraid to go in there and say to the GP, I've got headaches. I think it's a brain tumour. I'm worried it's a brain tumour because my granddad had one. And my expectation is for you to refer me for a CT scan. 
the right thing if you've got headaches is probably not for you to have a CT scan. But knowing that information really helps us make sure that we elicit your concerns and explain to you the reasons why a CT scan is not being offered. Yeah, that's a really good piece of advice. So for patients and for doctors, always remember your ICE ideas, concerns and expectations. And if you share those with us, it's far more likely that we'll hopefully give you a satisfactory consultation as well, because we'll know what to do. (laughs) And that's what we both want at the end of the day, both the doctor and the patient want to end that consultation with everybody happy. You know, we want you to be happy. That makes us happy. Yeah, it definitely does. Right. Well, I think now's a good time to switch gears and talk a little bit more about something else that's happened for you recently, something momentous in your personal life. And that is your lovely brand new-ish son, Lisbon. He's lovely. I've seen his pictures online. He's the cutest little thing. (laughs) He's so gorgeous. How does it feel? How does it feel being a new mum? Oh, it's a lot, isn't it? I think the the term is it's a lot. It's amazing and I love it, but also it's a huge transformation, isn't it? It's such a life-changing event having a child, becoming a parent. There's this really nice quote from a from a, a doula where she says, When a baby is born, a mother is reborn as well, and they're both in equal need of love, care and nourishment. And I think that's so, so true. He's a very, very wanted child. Like I from being three, I knew I wanted to be a doctor and probably from being about the age of five, I always knew I wanted to be a mother. And the reason I've left, I'm 41, the reason I've left it so late is I just didn't meet my partner to, I didn't, I wasn't in a relationship in a position to have a baby until the year before last year when I met Stuart. So I was really panicking, thinking, you know, I might not get my opportunity. And I was actually starting to make plans and see what my options were to go on and have a baby as a solo parent. So using a sperm donor or looking at ways around having platonic relationships with men who also want children. And I was exploring all these options. And at the age of 39, met Stuart in a bar in Lisbon, hence the name. And um, (laughs) and now we have this baby boy who is just adorable but yeah froze my eggs as well at the age of 38 in the hope of you know doing whatever I could to preserve my fertility so I've got a lot of empathy with the whole fertility community out there I think it's another thing that is so underrepresented we don't talk about it enough you know one in seven couples have difficulty and yeah it's been life-changing and mostly amazing but I'm not going to completely sugarcoat it (laughs) you're allowed to be honest (laughs) I think it's in fact I think it's important that you are I know that I couldn't have done all the things I'm doing right now when my children were young so I'm very impressed that you're even functioning enough to talk to me on a podcast let alone do all the other things that you do because for me it was it was such a challenge even the sleeplessness my goodness the sleeplessness that I experienced with my kids <laughs> in those early months and years I was all over the place <laughs> well it's about to be six months next week and I feel like it's this turning point where you know he's starting to have something other than breast milk because the whole I you know I chose to breastfeed and I'm always wanted to be able to do that and I'm so grateful that I was But as a working mum as well, and because he had suspected cow's milk protein allergy, so the only formula he could have was the hydrolyzed formula, which he just wouldn't take. And I have to say, don't blame him because I tried it and it tastes disgusting. So he was completely reliant upon breast milk and breast milk alone from me. So as a working mum, you know, there were times I've been up in the middle of the night pumping to make sure that there's enough so that I can leave the house the next day. 
and he's going to be fed and it's a lot of pressure. So, it is. you know, we've weaned him a little bit early because of his, some of the issues that he's had. And yeah, I just feel like everything, I just feel like I'm starting to relax a little bit now, but I've been constantly living off my nerves for the last six months, pretty much. It's, um, it's a lot, it's amazing. And, and although I would never, ever change the life I have now for my old life, sometimes I miss my old life as well, just being carefree and spending 40 minutes having a bath. Like, gosh, what a luxury that was. And at the time, I totally took it for granted. (laughs) Can I say exactly the same thing? I remember the first time I got in the shower after I had my first son, I just just stood in the shower thinking, I'm by myself. I don't have a little human at my boob. I don't... (laughs) It was just this most strange feeling. (laughs) One of the the things that gets me through is mum comedy. So mums who were comedians doing stand-up. And there was something I was watching yesterday. and, And she was saying, oh, you know, those... 10 minutes that she said I remember the days when I used to be really selfish you know I used to have a shower every single day and like the audience were laughing and she said you know I, I often three times a week now I get 10 minutes on my own in the bathroom she says sometimes I wash my hair sometimes I just lie on the floor and get a nap <laughs> <laughs> it's like I only have one I think how do people do it with multiple children but yeah it's definitely yeah. a change of life I it mean is. do you do you think well, I know how I feel about this, but I'm wondering how you feel. Do you think that being a doctor helped you to become a mum or do you think that it made no difference whatsoever? Oh, I think it's a help and a hindrance in equal parts because, you know, you have a bit of a head start, I think, in terms of understanding where you need to find information. So like we were saying earlier about Google, whenever I was looking for anything around sleep, I knew to go to the Lullaby Trust because I've recommended it to other patients. And, you know, you kind of know what, you have the confidence to know that if your child has a bit of a rash and it looks a bit dry and a bit eczema, you know, it's not a meningitis rash. So you you kind of have a bit of a head start when it comes to anything medical. But 99% of being a parent of a healthy child is stuff that we have no experience in, we haven't been taught about. Um, And you have a tendency, I think, to sometimes panic a little bit more. So, you know, my little boy, he was born on the 50th centile for his weight and he was steadily dropping down the centiles and ended up between the second and the ninth. And everyone kept just reassuring me. I'm like, no, but this is a problem because my GP brain says that if a child drops across two centiles, then things have to happen. I don't know what happens beyond that because we refer and hand over to the specialist, but stuff has to happen. So I got referred and then everyone that I see is like, yeah, it's okay, we'll just measure again in a few weeks. I'm like, no, something's meant to happen. What's meant to happen? Um, So I think, you know, it can make you more anxious in a lot of ways, but, you know, we do perhaps have a head start in that 1% of the stuff that is when I've got a cupboard stacked full of, Periton, paracetamol, you know, the nasal saline, the I'm ready and armed to do anything medical. I haven't, you know, I've used a bit of paracetamol when he had his, his immunizations and that's it. Cause, you know, the normal healthy baby stuff we we don't know anything about. No, I think you're right. I mean, yeah, it is definitely a mixed bag. I haven't taken my own kids to see a GP. <laughs> which is no, well, they don't need to, apart from for their injections. I mean, they haven't really needed to, which is wonderful from my perspective. They've been very well, but yeah. also I've I've been able to ascertain when things were serious or not. So I've really enjoyed watching some of that journey online because you haven't sugarcoated how it has felt and you've really shared a lot of of the realities of new motherhood. And also it's lovely and refreshing to hear you talk about some of the struggles that you've faced 
beforehand thinking, well, should I freeze my eggs? And, you know, what are my chances of having a baby as a solo parent? And these are conversations that I do think are important uh, to try and help other people feel more confident to think, actually, that's a possibility for me and I'm not alone. Absolutely. And and the thing I hear again and again and again, particularly from new mums, is nobody talks about this stuff, you know? Nobody talks about the intertrigo that you get between your boobs because your boobs are like pinned together all the time because they're massive and you can get a rash and infections and, you know, nobody talks about this stuff. So I think, well, I'll talk about it. I'm happy to talk about my experience. I've talked about everything online. You know, I've talked about the fact that I've suffered with anxiety. I've talked about the fact that my mum was an alcoholic. I've talked about everything. So why would I not talk about this stuff? And then there's the idea, oh, you know, I'm always thinking at the back of my mind, do I write a book? Do I write a book? What do I write a book on? I'll never get around to writing a book. I'm too lazy. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I've quite enjoyed, if I'm honest, talking about it and opening up the conversations because I've found that if I'm brave enough, and I don't really find it brave anymore because I've done it so many times and the the response back has been so positive, but if I am brave enough to open up and talk about my experiences, then it really does give permission for other people to share their experiences as well. And I think the one thing that we don't do enough as British culture is just talk about things openly. We keep things locked up behind the closed doors and keeping things inside, keeping things bottled up, dealing with it on our own in private, that leads to poor mental health and difficulty. Plus, it means we're less likely to find a resolution to the problems that we have. So so I think talking openly and honestly as a GP going through some of these struggles that are so common is it's a, it's a gift that I find really easy to give. That's a lovely way of putting it. And it's it's a and it is a gift because when we share a part of ourselves then it allows other people to share a part of themselves as well. And it's a gift to your patients because I know that my life experiences have allowed me to feel more empathy and certainly more compassion to the things that my patients go through. And I, I think, you know, for any good doctor, it's important to to look at things as, you know, treat people as you would want to be treated and share, share sharing that is, 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 is wonderful. So thank you for doing that for people and, and sharing some of those struggles. It's really good. You know, I think as doctors... 99.999% of doctors who go into medicine and stay in medicine um, genuinely genuinely do want to help people. It's a bit of a, bit of a cliche that, you know, in your medical school exam, they say, why do you want to be a doctor? And you say, because I want to help people. But um, But it's true and we do. And I think we all have different ways in which we can help people. Of course, there's that sitting in a consultation room and listening to somebody and helping them with their problem and prescribing medication. That helps. There's writing books and putting information out and making it digestible to people. That helps. There's going on TV, radio and delivering health messaging. But also, I think, you know, if you're willing to, I I know that I help people by sharing the fact that I suffer with anxiety and have taken medication for it. That is more helpful to a large number of people because it's such a, a personal experience. So rather than just giving information you know, actually sharing your own experience, it really does make people feel like, you know, I'm just a person like everybody else, but sometimes think, well, if she's a doctor and she's a doctor on TV and she's been successful and she's got this condition that I've got, then, you know, maybe I can find a way to to get better as well. And it starts with, start, it always starts with talking and sharing. Mm, it does. Yeah. And that's, I think, one of the beautiful things as well about 
even a medium like this, this you know, the Wellness Absolutely. Edit podcast. You know, yeah. We, we want to help people find ways of feeling well in their everyday lives that, that they may not have actually thought of before. And so, yeah, it's, it's lovely to find all the ways we can. And uh, so with regard to that, you know, moving swiftly on, because as this is the Wellness Edit podcast, do you have any things that you do like wellness non-negotiables now that that might have changed since being a mum because <laughs> I used to have loads I was going to say I'm sure you had loads of time to you know fit in all sorts of things but in that transition because many of us go through that transition of of not uh, not realizing how much time we actually have to do yes. the things that we want to do yeah what's been most important to you to kind of keep you sane for me it always comes back to the physical activity piece because you know I'm you know I'm very lucky that I enjoy exercise not everybody does but it's what keeps me well it's what keeps me, I know it's what keeps me physically well it's what keeps me mentally well and since having a baby you know that has changed a lot because for me throughout the pandemic especially it was a non-negotiable for me that I did some form of exercise at least 10 minutes a day whether it was a walk a run a yoga class a high impact lifting weights whatever I did something and now I don't. So what I think what's become the non-negotiable for me is at the moment is to be to shower every day. <laughs> Cuz I know that if I get up, I have to have and I've had a shower and I've put some clean clothes on, that's a different may, day for me than if I sit around in pajamas. So I shower every day and not every I don't actually manage it every day, but my non-negotiable is to get outside and go for a walk every day and I don't actually achieve that at the moment. So that's something for me to do a bit of work on because actually if I prioritize that, that is something that is achievable every day and again it makes me feel better. Yeah. And as Lisbon's about to be 6 months, I think, you know, the exercise, there's a lot more things that I can do with him so I can put him in a carrier. There's there's, um, there's something called carry fit where you do exercise classes with your baby in your carrier and you can do them online. So, you know, as a mum with a baby, that's kind of, if it's a non-negotiable, you can always do that because you've got the baby with you. So I'm going to start doing those classes and, and I'm also going to start doing some Pilates as well. Try and get my Brilliant. abs back because I've still got a gap a tummy gap mums will know what I'm talking about yeah um so I'm going to try and you know properly start and be consistent with the rehab for that as well oh, there we well go done. that's my pledge that's your pledge that's your that's your future non-negotiable <laughs> exactly <laughs> oh I know how it feels though I was exactly the same I ended up signing up for a boot camp class that I could take my little boy to and they would just let him run around and there was a few mums there doing the same class and they, their kids would either be in their car like be in their car seats or running around the <laughs> in the in the room and it was the only way I could fit it in yeah <laughs> so yeah. it's I think it is it is important to prioritize that if you possibly can and it's hard to do, isn't it? Especially if you're feeling low, it's hard to force yourself to have a shower and get dressed and uh, you're exhausted and you, your brain's all foggy because you've barely slept. But it, I promise you, it will make you feel better just to get outside, bit of fresh air, even if it's just a walk. Yeah, so that's a lovely thing to finish with. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Zoe. I really enjoyed that. I found oh. that fabulous conversation. Thank, thank you, you for no, sharing really enjoyed everything. It as well. Thanks <laughs> so much for having me on. And when people want to learn more about you and all the work that you do, uh, where can we direct them to? Um, Instagram would be the best place. It's just at Dr. Zoe Williams, Dr. Spelt with a DR, not fully spelt out. Um, yeah. That's where you'll Fabulous. find mostly what I'm up to. Well, uh, everybody head over to Instagram, Dr. Zoe Williams, and uh, you'll find out more. And it's been an absolute joy. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Gemma. 
thank you so much for joining me for that wonderful conversation with Dr. Zoe Williams. I really enjoyed chatting to a fellow GP who's super passionate about lifestyle medicine. And hopefully you all got a few nuggets of information and also just the realization that doctors are human too and most doctors care so it's wonderful to be able to share some of those insights from Dr Zoe and hopefully will help you in your next GP consultation to remember to share your ideas your concerns your expectations Um, if you enjoyed it do share it with friends if you think they would uh, benefit from it and remember you can find all previous episodes of the wellness edit on your favorite podcast platform and also via the Holland and Barrett website at hollandandbarrett.com 